Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. <sighs> What's wrong? It's that new girl, Chloe. Everybody in the building is always talking about Chloe and Chloe's knowledge of Icelandic chill wave pop and obscure craft beers and color-blocked snowboarder jackets. Yeah, the blouse Chloe's wearing today was designed and made by Peruvian murderers in one of the world's most dangerous prisons. Chloe says it gives these men a new... No, okay, I get it. Chloe is young and cool, and I'm getting old and irrelevant. I just don't want to hear that all the time. Kion, would you like to try my Omnitron 2000 accretion disc? I've got it right over here. What is it? It's basically a black hole, but it's the teacup kind. They were bred for people who wanted to keep them in small apartments. Aw, it's so cute. The first consumer models ever just went on sale at Best Buy last weekend. Now, stand right here and put your hand on this. Count to five and then push the red button. I bet stupid Chloe doesn't even know about this. Huh, I can see her over there and she looks sadder somehow. Hey, and you have some gray hair. Chloe and I have aged a year and a half while you've been standing here. Her really cool boyfriend from Paraguay dumped her. The accretion disc is slowing time down for you, but not for us. Wait, so if I keep using it, I can watch Chloe turn into a wrinkled old hag while I stay exactly the same? This is awesome. No, it's just basic hard science, but there's a downside. Everyone you know will grow old and die, and you'll have to make new friends. Wow. Remind me why there's a downside. Well... Chloe's really good friends with Madison Hawking, who's Stephen Hawking's granddaughter, and she says Madison says he says... Okay, I can't take it anymore. I'm not leaving this machine until I am the most retro person on Earth. I basically have to wait for an entire generation of Brooklyn hipsters to die, right? Meanwhile, on the scramble, we'll rummage around in the dark recesses of the National Book Awards and poke at the bad science of Interstellar. And now the Kim Kardashian photos broke his black hole. Colin McEnroe. I don't even want to think about that. But yes, yeah, so later on the show today, we will talk about the. Um, we'll talk to Douglas Stone, chair of the Applied Physics Department and author of Einstein and the Quantum, about the science in Interstellar, the brand new Christopher Nolan oat mumblecore science fiction movie, which I did not like. Um, I was a bit betray my prejudices right here. And then towards the end of the show, we're going to talk to Emily Gold. Uh, Emily Gold is, um, well, she's currently the owner of the indie bookstore Emily Books, she's former uh, co-editor of Gawker. She's got a piece uh, in uh, Salon about um, what she sort of calls the White Guy Literary Forgiveness Project. This is sort of the Stephen Glass, James Fry, Jonah Lehrer. Uh, reclamation project. Although I don't, I think Emily and I are going to disagree about that, but I, I hope in a very entertaining way. Uh, and uh, but we're going to begin with uh, Lisa Lucas. We're really excited to have her here. She's the publisher of Guernica Magazine. Um, it's currently an online, ten-year-old online uh, literary magazine. Although um, Lisa, do I have it right that you are uh, in the process of putting out or have put out your first ever analog dead tree uh, version of Guernica? We killed some trees, it's true, unfortunately, because we were very environmentally friendly. Um, but yeah, we put out our first um, our first print edition, the Guernica Annual, um, which will actually be in stores tomorrow, but we've been doing a kind of soft rollout, so we're selling them on our site. But yeah, no, we're, we're in print. It was cool to see it, uh, you know, in the flesh. 
Well, we're going to talk about all things literary uh, here at the beginning of the scramble uh, with Lisa Lucas. And uh, as Lisa pointed out to us, it's National Book Award Week. This is the week when the National Book Foundation gives out uh, book awards in areas like uh, uh, fiction and literary nonfiction and poetry. Uh, and I think there's a young adult thing now. Um, so, um, I, 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 first of all, I, I was, when you suggested this, I thought, wow, I haven't really thought about this very much in a long time. Um, and the first thing that happened was that I looked at the nominees, the finalists, the five finalists in each category, and I realized that I had almost no relationship whatsoever to any, any of these books. And I sort of wondered what that meant. I mean, one possible thing that it could mean is evidence of my own growing Philistinism, which, and I'm completely prepared to own that and accept that. But I also sort of wondered whether, and I, I don't know whether Guernica is a good seat from which to try to perceive this, whether there's an even larger divide now between belles letters uh, and, and sort of the general American public, whether literary fiction in particular is becoming a kind of a thing that a, a smaller group of people uh, tend to be aware about. I don't, do, you, do you have a take on that? You know, I think um I think there there does feel like there's a certain level of inaccessibility for, you know, general readers sometimes to think about. There's so many lists, there are so many books. Mm-hmm. Um and I think the National Book Awards week is so exciting is because you actually have this spotlight, this really big spotlight both within the publishing industry and for readers um where you can sort of look at these books that have risen to the top. Um and obviously there are other celebrations of books and other best of the year lists that come out that do that same job. But um, I think that this does really help bridge that gap. And that's one of the reasons why the promotion around it. I mean, the Book Foundation is dedicated to not only giving these awards, but to developing readers. You know, one of the things that you, you know, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, One of the, you you can enjoy these things in a number of different ways. And as I was, as I've been kind of investigating the list, and we'll talk uh, as we go about a couple of writers in particular that Guernica has highlighted, uh, writers who are absolutely worth knowing about, even if you're the kind of ignorant Philistine that I am and didn't know about them. Um, But, you know, another thing that I did, I talked to a bunch of writers that I knew, and I asked them about the National Book Awards and and how I might uh, look at them. And I was really astonished kind of pleasantly by the degree to which the National Book Awards are perceived with this kind of labyrinthine suspicion. And there are these two opposed streams of paranoia, and they're often practiced by the same people. Uh, on the, the first says that the, the, the process is so deeply idiosyncratic, it's really these five judges and nobody else. It's not really a, a national competition in any uh, other kind of, kind of culling sense. It leads to finalists and winners who are almost perversely obscure, whose book sales can sometimes number in the high hundreds and are not part of any significant American literary, literary conversation. Um, and what always often comes up is the Rick Moody panel of 2004 that put these five young female writers, all of whom lived in New York, City and and none of them with particularly recognizable names. And then there's this other stream of, stream of paranoia, which you will, often will hear from the same person who gave you the first one, that publishing has too much input and that there are these star editors and agents who are able to get consideration for their books um, and, and you know that certain books wind up among the finalists that have no business being there uh, or less business being there, but are the are the the product of this frantic politicking that, that goes on behind the scenes, uh, unseen by the rest of us unsuspecting readers. Um, first of all, I, 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 as somebody who's very, very plugged into this world, do you hear that kind of wild speculation uh, about the National Book Awards? I think it varies. I mean, the day that the finalists were announced, there was like a whole, or the long list maybe, there was a whole Twitter kerfluffle um, about just some of the 
some of the nonfiction that could have been included, some of it much more experimental, um, essay collections that um, hadn't been considered. A lot of, I think, four of the five books are all men, and one is an illustrated work by Ross Chast. Um, And so I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that with any kind of award like this, uh, a lot of issues about sort of insularity come up, about diversity come up, about sort of what manages to flow to the surface. Is it because a book didn't have enough money behind it or because it's a small publisher that did it? You know, who knew who? But I mean, I do think, despite the fact that I often talk a lot about you know, diversity of judges, of publishing houses, and making sure that, you know, it's like if you have people who are staffed on the administration level, as well as on the editorial level, um, you end up having a different set of things that are rising, that are that are getting weight put behind them. Um, but I do think working with a lot of people who work on these awards and, and are, are working on these books, because we work with all of them as a magazine, uh, I find that people generally have very good intentions. I think that the the system itself, the larger publishing system, is probably um, in need of some updating, which will flow through to all of these different awards that are given. But, I mean, it, yeah, I think it's hard. I mean, whenever you're administering an award and you're dealing with, like, you know, infinite books, right? Like, here are as every single book that came out in 2014. And then you have to synthesize that into five categories when, you know, there's probably 400 different categories you could come up with for all those books um, and figure out five writers whose reading habits and interests can actually help to identify a long list and a short list. I mean, there's no way there's not actually um, a wildly democratic way to govern those awards just by the nature of having to make selections and choices. Somebody at some point has to choose. Or you could do something like Goodreads does, which is, you know, just everyone votes and then you look at that. But, you know, that's that has its own complications as well. Um, Let's talk about a a couple of the authors whom you have featured here. Actually, before we do this, let me ask you, I mean, when I looked at the uh, the list of the fiction nominees, now, if this conversation were happening 15 years ago, I probably would have read maybe two or three of the the fiction finalists, Um, and I would certainly know them. You know, it would be unlikely that there would be things on the list that I don't know. And so I basically, my my entire relationship to the fiction finalists (laughs) consists of, and this is really sad, uh, having been waiting in the checkout line at Whole Foods and having been surprised to find out that they actually have books like just you know novels and stuff like that on this sitting there on this table and then having picked up this book by Anthony Doerr all the lights that we cannot see and then reading the flyleaf and thinking wow this really looks like a pretty interesting book if I weren't really busy I would buy it you know and and so that's terrible that like that's what I would know about the five fiction finalists is that I was in Whole Foods and I saw this book Um, but are are these books I mean I don't know are the of these five books are, are there any that you've read that you can either speak up for or speak against? Sure. You know, um, I have admittedly read large portions of and not all of many of them. (laughs) Um, But Marilyn Robinson's Lila is beautiful. um, And she's just such a wonderful writer. I Mm -hmm. mean, I think that there is a big um, literary kind of there's a lot of readers who really wait for Marilyn Robinson's. I think she did an event. recently in New York, and it was just like a huge number of people turned out to see her read. Um, she had like an extraordinary amount of time between, I think, her first and second novels. I'm not sure, but she's great. So, I mean, I feel like that one is great. Station Eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a, the flu novel. It's a, mm-hmm. uh, It's right. It's very timely right now. It's about a pandemic. Yeah. And that one's really fun to read. You know, that's a really 
that one I think is kind of the book that I would pick as the the sort of like vacation book. Mm-hmm. Um, although in a necessary woman um, who was also um, an interviewee for Guernica, uh, Robbie Alamedin, um is he's hilarious and wonderful, and that's a really great. Um, and and that's a good book. I feel like that might have been undersung in some ways. Like it's not at your, I I don't know, but I, it's not something I'd imagine seeing like at the airport as a book to pick up. But mm-hmm. it should be. Um, so I think that's one of the things that's really great about National Book Foundation because you see these books sing. Um, Redeployment's also great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Phil Cly, Um and he's contributed fiction to the magazine as well. So it's like you know I think that's another you know not to plug Guernica, but it's like I think sometimes if you're reading a lot of these small online publishers that are really tied into you know to the literary culture. Um, you end up sort of reading this stuff over the course of a year, a small excerpt here or, you know, in the case of Phil Clive, uh, flash fiction um, or interviews with these writers as they're coming out. So, you know, there is a way in, but I think that we tend to be a little bit, um, we're trying to widen our audience for sure so that right. people are seeing this stuff because a lot, it's, oftentimes it's diverse and politically relevant and yeah, I want to get to that. First of all, you've made me feel really horrible. I have to watch less Showtime and read more books and read Guernica more often, and, and <laughs> I, I, I'm ashamed of myself. But um, Don't you know, worry. In terms of that politically relevant uh, part of it, too, because I was thinking about it, that a lot, too, is I, I, I do feel as though in some ways there's, a, there's an estrangement between the, the, I don't know, the, greater politi- the greater literary community and the political sphere in a way that didn't exist 25, 30 years ago, and that you, know, you go to European countries or South American countries, um, literary writers and political writers are the same people uh, an awful lot of the mm-hmm. time. Uh, and, here it's, um, and so I was sort of thinking about that estrangement, but then looking through your materials, and obviously the implication of your name, Guernica, well, it's both art and it's war and it's Spain and it's, you know, it's, it has like a lot of different layers uh, of meaning even as a title. And, and looking at the stuff that you were sending over to us, I was thinking, well, I'm wrong about this. And so let's talk about um, Claudia Rankine. Is that how you say her last name? Yeah. I'm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she's nominated in the poetry category for Citizen, an American Lyric. And this is really, this is, I mean, we're sitting here waiting to see what the Ferguson Grand Jury does. This is this couldn't be more timely. I'll, I'll kind of let you take this over, though. Uh, explain to people what this uh, what this it's a, a book length poem. Yeah, it's a book length poem. Um, Claudia Rankine is amazing. Uh, we actually had an interview this week um, by our senior interviews editor Mira Sharma that was really awesome, and it talks about uh, her use of the second person. And over some time, she conducted a number of different interviews with friends and family and colleagues, um, and sort of synthesized this book of microaggressions, little things that happen every day. Um, I mean, it's all, it's all, it talks a lot about race. It talks a lot about being African-American. Um, but just sort of how these little things add up and how language can be very painful. Um, but it's also just quite beautiful. It's like at one point like anthropological and I think looks at all these different current events that are happening and how we internalize them collectively. Um, and it really does assign one of the things that Mira draws out in the interview that was so cool was just talking about how the use of the second person not only allows you know her to tell other people's stories and to tell her own story and interweave those narratives, but also to implicate the reader because it may not be, you know, a brown reader. It may be a white reader. It may be. But but just to make us all feel sort of like um, a part of these interactions. Um, so it's really beautiful. I mean, her language is really gorgeous and, you know, and it's very in your face. I mean, one of the things that I loved about Citizen was just how sort of, you know, uh, bold it is. Um, I think we often write about race, 
read about race and, you know, we start talking about history and this, but it's just like this is how horrible it is on a day to day. And it's not some it's not some blog. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with blogs, but it's, you know, there's seriousness to it. There's weight to it. You know, she's very established. She's up for this huge award. And I think that there's something to both the way that it's presented, its timeliness, its boldness, its language, you know, and it's just tr- truth that makes it just this exceptionally compelling, very political, but also this really small and personal narrative. Yeah. And, um, the and poetic, inter- obviously. Right. And the interview is great, too. The, the Guernica interview, it really is good. And it gets into a lot of things and from the things that cause her despair to the things that give her hope, one of which turns out to be watching John Oliver cover uh, Ferguson, which I, I thought was interesting, too. But, yeah, that, that whole notion of the, um, these, those, these personal misunderstandings that really arise from and contribute to a sense of otherness, that, you know, that, 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 that we're not the same people, that people of color and, and white people are not the same people. I mean, you know, the one that jumped out at me was that, you know, a woman saying, I didn't know that black women could get cancer. Um, right. Like, what, I mean, I sort of understand uh, when I was adopting a, a Mexican baby, people would ask me if I was going to learn Spanish so that uh, the baby and I would understand each other. Yeah. Um, oh, I would have to say, well, actually, he will not be born knowing Spanish. It, does, it doesn't really work that way. But so you sort of understand that, that we there's this strange psychological divide that people make. Like, oh, yeah, we're really we're that different, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and it's not that strange. I mean, I think it's born of many years of 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 the world being built that way and and power structures being very real. You know, I mean, you used the word misunderstanding earlier, which I think is interesting because it's like if somebody comes up to you and, and you know and says, "Oh, I didn't realize that you could get cancer because mm-hmm. you're black." You know, I, I would be as a black woman sort of like, "Well, you just literally didn't stop to consider my humanity. (laughs) Exactly. You know, like, I mean, so it's not even a misunderstanding. It's a willfulness. And I think that that's what's so cool about this book. It calls that out, you know, and it sort of really brings a light. Like, how could you say this? And she constantly says um, at the end of some of the the pages, just, you know, what did you mean by that? I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And there's something to that because it's just like if you actually dig a little deeper, I mean, I don't know that it's a misunderstanding. It's just getting caught out in, 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 in being very not thoughtful about who another human being is and the struggles that they face and the similarities that we really do have. Well, let's, let's and talk, the differences. Yeah. Let's talk about another politically relevant uh, book that's, that's uh, nominated this year and, and uh, which uh, involved an interview in Guernica. Uh, Evan Osnos, who writes for The New Yorker, or people might remember the very interesting and lengthy Joe Biden profile just a, just a few months ago. That was him. Uh, but his book is The Age of Amb- Ambition, Chasing Fortune, Truth, and Faith uh, in the New China. Um, and, and one of your writers, I, I can't remember whether it was you yourself or not, but somebody went really deep. No, this, this is a very long and in-depth um, Evan Osnos um, interview. Um, tell me why you guys thought that was important enough to do. Well, I think um, so I, I, we, we like to um, cover work that explores the intersection of art and politics. Um, and I imagine... Um, on the interviews editor's team that one of the reasons that Age of Ambition was important was, one, because there were all these protests happening in Hong Kong, right? Mm-hmm. So I think Evan was probably someone who could speak quite a lot to what was happening with a really, really, really strong understanding of the region. Um, but I also think there's something from my take, and I talked to him for the National Book Foundation, um, and I imagine that the interviewer from Guernica thought the same thing. Um, th- there's a real artfulness to the book. Um, he's really telling the stories of these different folks living in China 
and how the world is changing around them and how they're building businesses and, and coming to terms with, you know, a changing government and lots of restrictions. And, and he does it just so beautifully. I was uh, when I read the book, I was I kept thinking about oral history because it was so seamless that you sort of felt like you were really hearing the voices of um, the, the folks who were profiled in the book. Um, and for a nonfiction book, and I think people sometimes think that something that's about politics or about, um, you know, about a country or is a history can be just like inaccessible and super boring. But um, the writing is so playful and, and, and thoughtful and um, really humanizes what is abstract. Like I think sometimes we look at a, another place and say, well, I mean, I don't know anything about that place. And so therefore it is totally abstract to me and inaccessible. And I think that he really makes like, let's talk about this place on a human level. Let's talk about, you know, the fact that we're all exactly the same, you know, but we live in different contexts. Um, and I, I thought he did just a great job drawing that, drawing those stories out. The uh, this also sort of highlights the difficulty and maybe even the insanity of trying to give out give out awards like this. So you've got this book, uh, as you have just described it. You know, you've got John Lars' biography of Tennessee Williams. Uh, you've got uh, Edward O. Wilson, whose book means means is nothing less than the meaning of human existence. <laughs> and because it's Edward O. Wilson, you think, well, maybe he does know the meaning of human existence. Uh, and Roz Chast, as you say, well, a sort of um, a, a cartoonized uh, uh, book about taking care of her aging parents, and then uh, Anand Gopal. Uh, a book about the Taliban. Um, you know, it's, it is sort of insane to look at those five books and go, well, we're going to pick one of those that's better than the other. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they all have such different missions. It, it's like, you know, how do you even make that decision? Yeah, I, 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 I'm glad I don't have to. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. No, and I was going to say, you know, that was the big per- kerfluffle on Twitter. I mean, mm. I think the day that they announced the nonfiction section, there's just so much good nonfiction. And I feel like there is actually so much movement in kind of what people are writing. People are just getting very creative with um, the types of nonfiction that they're publishing. And I I think that there's so much um, that isn't reflected in that list, even though it is a great list. That was where people were kind of like, how do you even pick and how does this process work this year? Mm -hmm. Although I think it's a great list, too. And I'm super excited to see Raj Chast and see, you know, a lady cartoonist in there. Uh, no, it, these are very interesting lists, and, and they, they should be my reading lists. Um, though I did notice that Marlon James has left off the fiction list, and that's sort of like the it you book. Know, yeah, Marlon James is amazing, and mm. that book is amazing. And, you know, I think I, had, I was talking to, actually to his publicist, and I think the only reason he's not on this list is because um, he's not an American citizen. Uh, well, we, we he's, are— He's ne- actually— we're in negotiations right now to do a show with Marlon James. I don't know how far along we are in those negotiations. So oh. That book is fantastic. And he is such a, like, I mean, the book is incredible. It has, like, all these different voices and goes through three different decades. And it's just, it's a masterpiece. I thought it was, like, I really love that book. Mm-hmm. I haven't loved a book like that in several mm-hmm. years. I got to talk with him at the Texas Book Festival. And it was, he's such an interesting conversationalist. I wish he could read the whole book. You know, Lisa Lucas, we've only got a couple of minutes uh, left here, but I did want to just sort of talk to you about talk to you about what you are as publisher of Guernica Magazine and what what it means. I mean, I just I was just watching, and I know you haven't watched it yet, but I was watching this the documentary, the Fifty Year Argument, which is a, about the history of the New York Review of Books, which is a very different story, a story which, in so far as it ever was possible, tried to ignore digital publishing entirely, uh, mm-hmm. you know, until the absolutely forced at gunpoint, uh, and and still not very comfortably. But but you know, one thing they do say 
the two founders say, you know, at a certain point we realized, boy, if we could, you know, we could get this loan or whatever, this grant or whatever, you know, we could, we could say anything we wanted to. We could print anything that we wanted to. We wouldn't be bound by it. And then that, that was the goal. That was the grail. I'm assuming that might be an area of commonality that, that you know, that one reason to do something like this, which I, I'm sure operates on quite a shoestring and, and out of the kindness of, of, of donors and grants and Kickstarters and everything else you can do, is the desire to really do what you want to do as opposed to what somebody else wants you to do. Absolutely. Um, so in 2004, Joel Whitney and Michael Archer founded the magazine. Um, and they're both still on the board, and Michael remains the editor-in-chief. And I definitely think that the idea of, of doing it online and doing it with as little you know, necessary financial output as possible was to be able to just do what you wanted to, to not be bound to what people thought they wanted to read. And, you know, 10 years later, I think they had this incredible idea um, because 10 years later, the readers are there, right? And so you're actually kind of, you don't, you found the audience for what you wanted to talk about without having to actually compromise on the quality of the work or how long you wanted to take to publish a piece or, you know, we don't follow the news cycle particularly. I mean, we, we you know, I think most of the work is politically relevant, but it's mm-hmm. not like most of our pieces are pretty evergreen. Um, and so I think that, yeah, for, for Joel and Michael, when they started it and, you know, continue on for everybody who works at Guernica, I think that being able to not have to say, we have to, we can't say this because of this advertiser or we can't do this because of, you know, the market dictates X, Y, and Z is like a huge part of why we are the way that we are. That uh, it's appealing to hear. I mean, I write for Salon occasionally, and I can tell you right now that the piece I'm thinking about writing is already too old. Um, mm-hmm. It's it actually gets in the way. I mean, there are a number of pieces that I haven't written because by the time I got through thinking about them, I thought, oh, they don't even want that anymore. I mean, thirty yeah. thirty six hours went by. That's not an an interesting story anymore. So right. the idea that you guys would be doing stuff that you know uh, would not be driven by the these you know the reflexes of a housefly uh, that, that's kind of an uh, an appealing concept. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, I think the New York Review of Books, it's like a great, I think all of these institutions that sort of started as, you know, a bunch of smart people getting together and being like, we want to do something interesting and cultural that reflects our values and, and what we read and what we love. And that have made it, you know, 30 and 40 and 50, 60 years. Is, it's so heartening. I mean, we just made 10. And that feels like this incredible milestone. But it's like the we could make it to 50, you know, if we play our cards right and we keep building and, and make sure that we're, you know, that we're, that we've done the things to, to create uh, the infrastructure to stay around. And so that's really exciting. I mean, I think that's what's cool about entering um, a second decade. And I think cool to see documentaries like, um, like the one you're talking about exist because it's like, you know, it gives you hope for the future, right? Because there's no real reason you know, why a lot of publications make, you know, it's like it could easily be something that didn't catch on or that without somebody fighting for it wouldn't have happened. And it's just cool to see people have the stamina and readers to keep supporting. Well, Lisa Lucas, you are a great and inspiring guest. Uh, I'm going to change my reading habits just because of you. And I won't <laughs> wait 10 years uh, to have you on this show again. Let's talk again very soon. Thanks for being with us today. Though. Awesome. Thank you. All right. When we come back, it'll be the physics of interstellar. All right, we're back. Uh, well, uh, when you get uh, near a black hole, 
uh, time slows down. I'm not even sure exactly how true that is. It certainly is true in the movie Interstellar, uh, which I watched with the increasing feeling that time was slowing down. And then maybe when I left, everybody else would be 30 years older than when I went into the movie theater. However, that may not be good physics. It's more the aesthetic experience for me of watching this movie, which I intensely disliked. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to have much of an argument with Douglas Stone, who's the chair of the Applied Physics Department and the author of Einstein and the Quantum, uh, an NPR top science book of 2013, uh, because he didn't like the movie either. Uh, However, he's more qualified to dislike the movie than I am. I'm only disliking the movie on an amateur basis. Um, So first of all, Douglas Stone, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, I don't, didn't know anything about the physics of the movie, and, but I did know that they had arranged, they had contracted with Kip Thorne, uh, a, a major physicist, a, a disciple of Hawking, uh, and he plays a major role in, in the concocting of the movie, right? He's got, he's got a big screen credit there, which would suggest to me that they were taking the physics of this movie, which is about uh, travel. You know, I'm assuming everybody knows something about this movie now. And we should say that in order to discuss the, some of the things that we intensely dislike about this movie, we are going to have to talk a little bit about the ending of the movie. So if you would like to turn your radio down for four or five minutes or something like that, we'll try to get through it really fast, but uh, that part of it anyway. Uh, but just be, be forewarned. If you haven't seen the movie and you're planning to see the movie, we might sort of wreck it, although I don't see how... This movie can be wrecked. But anyway, um, so I, first of all, um, Douglas Stone, so, somebody, Jonathan McNichol from our station said that this movie is the most severe divider of what he referred to as mainstream nerds that he's ever seen in popular culture. That people either really love it or hate it, and there's no in between. Uh, and it, it seems like there's a little bit of a divide going on in science, too, about how good the science of the movie actually is. Yes, well, the uh, the uh, creative consultant or the scientific consultant, Kip Thorne, is a very distinguished uh, general relativity expert and cosmologist, and uh, he got to play with all the toys that he's been playing with uh, theoretically now in this movie, and I think it was fun and exciting for him. And I am not a cosmologist, so, uh, you know, a little, little warning there, disclaimer, uh, I am a theoretical physicist and know a little bit about general relativity, uh, but uh, so I, I will not go toe to toe with Kip Thorne about rotating supermassive black holes, which apparently are critical to uh, some of the things that seem really weird about the movie. Um, but uh, uh, so I do think that he got to put in some things that have a scientific basis. Uh, wormholes, I guess, at least are possible things in general relativity which will connect different parts of the universe so that you can get there without violating Einstein's stricture against going faster than the speed of light. And even though I learned in graduate school or shortly thereafter that uh, astronauts going into a black hole would get torn apart or spaghettified, mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that phrase, um, apparently, if it's a big enough black hole, you might get inside before you're totally crushed, although you would be stuck there forever and totally crushed, uh, so, or torn apart, actually, to be more accurate. Uh, so I think a lot of the physics that goes up to the climactic ending uh, is okay and could be given a pass. The, the part that's really good, actually, is the part about the dilation of time, mm-hmm. which is a totally verified phenomenon in relativity theory and underlies the timing in our GPS system that, to make it more accurate, and so on. So that's, that's good. 
Um, and I think there's a, a tragic moment when the world is aging around him that's actually good in, in the film uh, that you know about. Um, uh, but at the end, um, they have to kind of totally violate physics <laughs> because they introduce this element of surviving the descent into the black hole and going backwards in time and communicating with people backwards in time. And that is completely nonsense in terms of our understanding of modern physics, and no one has gotten around the paradox that if you go back in time, you can alter time in a way which would prevent you from being there to do the thing that you went back, you know, et cetera. So that's really my big gripe, that they, they suddenly move from being sort of slight exaggerations of physics that we believe, more or less, to something that might as well be magic and might as well be in a Harry Potter movie. Yeah, and I do feel as though, you know, these mo- the, a movie like this is sort of a p- potential teaching moment. I mean, we, you can't, you, you shouldn't rest your intellectual foundation on something that costs, you know, $165 million to make. It has a lot of special effects and stuff like that. You should actually go and take a, a physics course somewhere. But, you know, the people look at this and they think, well, okay, I'm going to try to understand the physics of this because obviously some thought has been put into it and they're trying to explain things to me. And they have physicists actually, you know, mumbling things um, that I can barely understand them saying. But um, so I should try to understand that. And, and I did, too, because I like stuff like that. You know, I like Stoppard's play Arcadia, it's full of math that I don't understand, and I will really work hard to understand it. But yes, suddenly he's behind all these bookshelves and stuff, you know, and like, and I, I and then he wakes up in a hospital bed. And I just, I, I thought, what happened? What, the, and but now you're telling me that what happened was that it wasn't that I stopped understanding it, it's just that they, they sort of they punted, <laughs> they said, we got to have a nice Hollywood ending here, he's got to get back alive. We got to explain the unexplained poltergeist at the beginning, and uh, and uh, so we're gonna just put you know a miracle occurs uh, where there used to be physics, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, you know this is the point at which uh, humans are now placed again at the center of the universe, and our little petty concerns about <laughs> whether we live and die and see our kids again suddenly become really important. But the point about the universe and the black holes and all that is, sadly, we're not at the center. And if you go mess around with them, you're not going to get back alive. You're not going to see your kids again. And they they just decided they had to do that to end the movie. And it made it into a sort of saccharine, cliched thing. Um, I mean, I'm less worried about the movie causing people to experiment recklessly with black holes. Uh, I'm not concerned that people are going to think, well, I can always just go back. You know, Um, uh, that's not worrying me so much. But, you know, we're coming up on what is effectively next year will be effectively the 100th anniversary of the theory of relativity, at least to the extent that you can put a date on it. You know, 1915 really is sort of that date. And it does seem like it would be a great time for all of us morons out here to see if we could, you know, figure it out better than than what we understand right now. And 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 this movie seemed like maybe the uh, an up ramp onto that. But and I don't really know exactly what question I'm asking you right now. Though it seemed like in 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 2015 maybe you know it would be a good time to look at relativity and one more time if you're just the average person and see if yeah. you can get it. You know. Well, the you know the basic thing, and I, I give lectures to general audiences on why why Einstein is the greatest genius perhaps of all time and the basic thing that time is not an absolute flow but has some kind of uh, you know flexibility in terms of the time intervals between events 
this thing is very understandable, and I really try to explain it to ordinary, you know, non-scientists in terms of, you know, simple examples, um, and uh, just saying, look, if the speed of light is going to be constant, which we measure it to be, okay, then time cannot be flowing at the same rate for all observers. And so that thing, which is, you know, among the two or three incredible things that Einstein realized, um, is understandable, and I urge people to take a shot at it uh, at the, at the um, you know, anniversary you're talking about, which is, in fact, 1915, and which I mention, this is kind of the, you know, piece de la resistance of Einstein's life. It was the, the moment when, the, you know, the, 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 the veil was lifted and he, he peered into the eternal, um, and people have said things like, this is the greatest achievement of human thought, you know. That's the kind of hyperbole that's associated with it. Well, let me just add, mention one last thing here, one last trope that's in this movie that drives me crazy, and I don't even know what I'm talking about. So uh, I would imagine that would be even more uh, troubling uh, to somebody with a, a real background in applied physics. So, and there, But there's, this happens in movies a lot, all right? There's a moment where somebody's looking at a huge equation on a blackboard, and they're usually holding a dry erase marker or a piece <laughs> of chalk, and they say, wait a minute. What if, what if we're thinking about H the wrong way, you know? What if H is actually a different kind of unknown? What if it's this? And then there's like three weeks later, there's like something you can order from Amazon that's based on that equation, you know? And my sense is that the journey from that elaborate piece of mathematics to, you know, actually being able to do something out in the world is <laughs> a pretty long one. It's a much longer one than Hollywood wants us to, to believe. A little more painful. Yeah, so that is actually was the next level of critique that I was going to make about the movie if it came up, which is that it's focused on saying, well, there's some things about gravity that we don't understand, and they somehow to do, do with the quantum and Hawking and, and these kinds of things. And, uh, you know, one of the characters eventually solves the problem with a eureka moment. In fact, I think... Just to make sure everybody understood the cliche, she actually says Eureka, right. as I recall. <laughs> and, um, you know, the kinds of things that we uh, are trying to understand about quantum gravity are, are highly conceptual. They're not data. They couldn't be wired back to us from somebody in Morse code like they are in the movie. And then it doesn't mean we can change anything about controlling gravity. I mean, Einstein understood uh, gravity at a very, you know, at, at a cosmological level in 1915. We haven't got on anti-gravity, you know, 100 years later. Um, you know, just because we understand it doesn't mean we can make the thing that, that physics isn't allowing us to do in the first place. So it, it's very unrealistic, and particularly when you're talking about physics that involve black holes. I mean, in, when I talk about Einstein, um, I talk about understanding the atom, and that really did allow us over 60 years to make all this new electronics or 80 or 90 years that, that rules our lives now. Um, Doug Stone, you're going to have to come back uh, in uh, 2015. We are going to do our uh, 100th anniversary of Relativity Show. You sound like uh, you would be a, an essential uh, part of that if you'd be willing to join us again. Thank you so much. Yeah, uh, I'd love to do that. I have lots of stories to tell. All right. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Okay. All right. When we come back, one more uh, story. It's the story of rule breakers in the world of literature and journalism seeking forgiveness. I saw this alien years from outer space 
Becomes the president and cuts our tax rates. I saw it in a movie. So we can land on a comet, but we can't give Donald Trump some hair that looks unridiculous? Sorry, I just had to get that off my chest. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Jackie Filson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. And the part of Bill Curry was played by Neil deGrasse Tyson. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff making Black Hole Ink pasta, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the cutthroat world of competitive mathematics. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, actually, tomorrow's show is an extension of the segment we just did. Uh, we do believe that math is can, can be sexy uh, and uh, dramatic and exciting and beautiful, and we're going to try to prove that to, to you tomorrow. Um, this is a show I am grotesquely unqualified to do, um, but that some of the tension that arises from that fact may be part of the entertainment of the show, too. All right, so we have one final segment here. Uh, we're going to be talking to Emily Gould. She is the co-owner with Ruth Curry of the indie e-bookstore Emily Books and is a former co-editor of Gawker. Her own books include the collection of essays and The Heart Says Whatever, and more uh, recently, a novel called Friendship. Uh, she's uh, um, in Salon right now um, with a piece about the Literary Forgiveness for White Guys Club, or project, I guess is um, the, the better term. So First of all, welcome to the show, Emily Gold. And second of all, uh, tell us about the White Guy Literary Forgiveness Project. Uh, hey, Colin, thanks for having me. And I was really uh, happy I got to write this piece, although the events that precipitated it made me really bummed out. Um, it was an interesting confluence of events last week. Jonah Lehrer's uh, latest book deal was announced at the same time that uh, Hannah Rosen came out with this really great article in the New Republic about kind of rehabilitating the image of her former co-worker, Stephen Glass, who, as I think everybody knows, was sort of the inciting, high-visibility, high-profile uh plagiarist and fabulous who he had a high-flying career, and then it turned out that he made a lot of his articles up just completely, like, out of whole cloth. Yeah, he, we, just to set oh, the stage sorry, a little yeah. bit, yes, just to set the uh, stage a little bit. So it was about 16 years ago, I think, at the New Republic, and he was this high-flying feature article writer, and other feature writers looked at it and they said, well, okay, this guy finds the most interesting things to write about. He goes to these conventions you can't even believe exist, or he finds yeah, these the people... Yeah, the Monica Lewinsky <laughs> memorabilia convention was a, was a particularly memorable one, I remember. Yeah, and so it just turned out that gazillions of these things just weren't completely made up out of whole cloth. He was a very talented fabulous as opposed to uh, a really gifted uh, journalist. And, and, and then um, uh, Jonah Lehrer, who was really kind of positioned almost as the next Malcolm Gladwell, this guy who could really sort of interpose literary writing with scientific uh, revelations uh, and, and, and insights into human nature. Uh, and he got caught sort of a combination of some plagiarizing of himself, recycling articles that, as new that he'd actually already published someplace else, um, faking a Bob Dylan quote and then kind of being really dishonest about where it came from. And so I just wanted to sort of like shove out onto the stage some of these people. James Fry, everybody knows, of course. He was uh, an Oprah-ordained writer whose book just turned out, to, his own memoir turned out to be full of stuff that never happened to him. 
Yeah, I, I kind of dragged him in there, even though he doesn't quite fit in the same category as Jonah Lehrer and Stephen Glass, because for me, he was the person who uh, his his saga, um, I guess it happened when I was kind of at a formative age myself with writing, and uh, it it was very disillusioning. You know, I think for, for one generation, the Stephen Glass thing was disillusioning for people who are kind of maybe in their early 20s and starting out as journalists. Now, the Jonah Lehrer thing is, I mean, I... I really shudder to think the lesson that people are taking away from that. To me, it's basically like, well, you know, maybe three months, maybe six months pass, and then you can actually use your public shaming in order to have a bigger platform than you did before and make money from it, which is just disgusting. Like, vile. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I I dragged James Bryan there sort of, I don't know, making this point that, like, what well, what are these people supposed to do exactly? Like, they can't go live in a cave forever, even though I kind of sometimes feel like they should, you know? That, that would be my preference, but it's not realistic. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think, first of all, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to know exactly how to make the punishment fit the crime. And, you know, in the case of, of Stephen Glass, he really has been kind of out of the business for 16 years. He works for a personal injury lawyer in California now. Um, and, and it's, you know, I mean... I agree with you that we need to be able to believe. I mean, it's a real assault on journalism if things get published that, that as untrue that are uh, as true that are really untrue. That's a real problem. But, but it's also I sort of look at it and well, they didn't really murder anybody or they didn't no, knock their fiance. Yeah, go ahead. It's a huge deal, though. I think it um, it doesn't just have the sort of immediate consequences that are that are obvious. It damages everyone's faith in the whole project of reading and writing when this stuff happens like in maybe incrementally like maybe you can't really see the immediate consequences but you know the whole enterprise operates on this huge amount of trust and when people betray that trust and then aren't really censured for it that sends this message that's just i don't know to me obviously it's it's uh complicated dicey thorny thing to compare it to something that physically hurts people but it kind of wounds people's souls i don't know maybe i'm taking it too seriously well, no, I, to, I, me, I, to me it's like I, like that was the level that i felt it on you I, know i think i think you're absolutely right to take it on that level although what i got out of your piece it made me think some more about what what's really there is this whole issue uh, of the gatekeepers right who gets to decide when you can come back when you can't come back you know oprah maybe let's fry you know come back on and 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 try uh to rebuild his reputation uh, well sure and, that's great tv also yeah <laughs> and, and hannah rosen writes this very long hand-wringing piece uh, about stephen glass although i would just quickly say that hannah rosen rosen's husband david plotz whom i'm very fond of and i'm a great admirer of you know without blinking an eye hired Elliot Spitzer to be a journalist after oh, Elliot you know I mean and so if the if if these are the gatekeepers the people who kind of make these decisions you know I mean Stephen Glass has to live in the wilderness eating locusts and honey and working for a, a personal injury lawyer <laughs> you know Elliot Spitzer who could just betrayed everything basically gets hired as a news analyst by Slate so I mean it, it is sort of like what are the rules and then who gets to decide that you can come back well, I mean, as we see, it is a lot easier for some people to come back than others, um, and the and the cycle has sort of sped up in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the the sort of initial scandal happening and and then the rehabilitation that tends to happen a lot 
I think I think in general it happens a lot faster. I think um, that's true too. Of course, journalism happens a lot faster. I was just saying to one of our previous guests because I write for Salon too, and I sometimes feel like the idea I'm having right now is already too old uh, to, to go into Salon. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, when people say "in case you missed it" about news that broke literally five minutes ago, right. when they're tweeting about it, it's it's we're we're going too fast. So, <laughs> we need to take a chill pill. So that that's actually why Stephen Glass has to do sixteen years, and Jonah Lehrer can is sort of crawling back up out of the muck, although not all the way out of the muck. And uh, you know, the other thing that I think is, if you are part of a big big enough bulwark. You never have to serve time. I mean, we know that Maureen Dowd has plagiarized uh, in her columns and that she's fabricated quotes in her columns. She never has to pay any price for it. For it. Judith Miller helped start a war. <laughs> Mm, yeah, <laughs> you know? a lot of people did actually die. Mm. You know, so and, and you know, so sometimes, but see, the New York Times can't really afford to say, "Well, we've invested this amount, this much of our reputation in somebody who really does do the kinds of things that other writers get in a lot of trouble for." Um, true. I totally agree with you. I guess it's, sorry, it's like a, a boring debate that we're having because I, I feel like we're totally on the same page about this stuff. But I guess the question that's more interesting is like, what, what should we do? Like, what is an appropriate sort of career outcome for someone like Joan Lehrer? And I actually don't know. I mean, I, I kind of got to a place in the piece where I was like, well, you know, I feel that James Fry. Fry hasn't suffered adequately for his sins, and you know his his punishment should be to like not use the gift that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, like whose purposes would that serve? I mean, he does have a gift, you know. Right. Um, well, maybe so. we need to get go back to Puritan times and have stocks and pillories and things <laughs> like that. We get these things out of our systems really fast. Uh, I'm, Emily Gould, I'm so sorry. I've run out of time. The piece is no, fascinating. No People should check it out on Salon, except it's already probably been bumped off the front page by 18 other things. But thanks so oh much. Oh, my for, God. You know it has. Yeah, you t- totally has. I'm sorry about that. Anyway, uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, sure. We'll be back tomorrow with mathematics. It's going to be very complicated. Uh, and uh, thanks to Betsy Kaplan and Wolfie and everybody else who helped out today. Greg, it's not your fault. Okay, what's not my fault? It's not your fault. Kyle, I really didn't do anything wrong. Unless you're referring to that time in 98 when... Oh, wait, are you talking about the saran wrap wedgie incident? Yeah. Never mind. That was totally your fault.